I think GMP, I mean, like I said, since it's been in place in all other industries for so long, this is not reinventing the wheel. This is not something that, you know, people haven't been doing or have never done before, you know? So I feel, and cannabis people are smart as hell. Like once we get it into a facility, people figure it out and they're like, oh my God, I got this. I got this. And I'm like, yeah, you do. It seems really hard when you look at the big, big iceberg, but when you just like chip off little pieces every day, it goes away pretty quickly and it, it makes it pretty easy for people. So. You're listening to, to be blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And I wanted to say thank you so much for hitting play on another episode intended to bring you closer to transparency within the cannabis industry. I feel like I've been in a whirlwind of travel, then playing catch up, and then some more travel. So I really do appreciate you hanging in there with me as we get into a very busy and productive and exciting fall. With that said, we are full steam ahead with a great lineup of guests and stories that are coming to the podcast. I want to ensure you that I am keeping the inspiration and information coming, so be sure to be on the lookout for future episodes. But if this is your first time, I also want to take a moment to encourage you to listen to previous episodes too. While so much changes in our industry, a lot of the topics covered are very much still relevant and can give you even more insight into the operations of cannabis businesses. Another quick note, by the way, if anyone is going to be at MJ Biz in November, please do let me know. I will be there and I'm looking forward to networking and connecting with so many brands and businesses IRL and for sure more to come on that event. But just wanted to make a mention, if you are on the fence about going, have questions, have thoughts, will be there, are going to be attending, please do let me know. So now diving right into today's introduction, I wanna pick back up highlighting three trending topics that I think you should know about. And the first one is a story by Yahoo Finance titled, female-led cannabis companies receive fraction of capital of male counterparts, which is not surprising to me, but I wanna go into the story for you a little bit, which goes on to say, although the cannabis industry has become more widely accepted throughout the United States, the number of companies led by women has not kept up. Nancy Whiteman, the CEO of Wanna Brands, was quoted at Benzinga, which is a cannabis conference. They were holding a capital version of their conference just a couple weeks ago in Chicago, stating when women in the industry raise capital, their valuations can be 30 to 40% less than similar male-led companies, she said. So that basically means when they are raising money and they're getting valuations of what their company is worth, Women compared to men are getting 30 to 40% less than what male owners and founders who run similar companies are getting. Across the United States, 19.9% of cannabis businesses are owned by women, according to a report by MJ Biz Daily, and just 8% of all cannabis CEOs are women. 
The MJ Biz report also found that 36.8% of executive positions in the cannabis industry were held by women in 2019. But that number has dropped to 22.1% in 2021. And for comparison, the national average of women executives across all industries in 2020 was 29.8%. So we were certainly higher than that in 2019 and have dropped below the national average for just general industry across the board, which is definitely hard to hear, obviously. As a female in cannabis myself, I remember when the 2019 stats came out and it was so exciting. We were so hopeful it would only increase. But after seeing the numbers drop by 10% plus, it's become even more disheartening to stay motivated knowing the road ahead is difficult, but even more so for females navigating the industry. I think those numbers are important to highlight so we have them in front of us as business owners, as operators, as hiring managers, as executives, as leaders. We have an opportunity if we are in a position of power to uplift others Obviously, diversity and inclusion is a huge topic in the cannabis industry, but going off of these data points, specifically from a female perspective, our numbers are not trending upwards. They're actually trending downwards. And from the article, it kind of you know alludes to capital being the first point of contention for that. If women aren't able to profit off of their business in the same way that men are, it just kind of sets us up for, I don't want to say failure, right? But just it's just an uneven playing ground. So again, not surprised, but definitely wanted to bring attention to that because if you're in a position of power, you have an opportunity to help impact that. So I hope that that resonates with you as much as it's resonating with me. The second story is by Marijuana Moment, and it highlights a new feature on the latest iOS update, which, by the way, I just did on my phone, and the new features are are exciting, and also my brain is like, why did it take us this long to get some of these features? But with that said, Marijuana Moment reported that Apple lets users now search for marijuana and pharmaceutical interactions in the latest iPhone health update. I haven't personally got a chance to check this out. Like I said, I did just do the update, so I definitely want to, you know, kind of test it. I want to play around with it myself just to see what it's all about. But I thought from an article perspective, it was important to highlight and I'll get into why. So the latest version of Apple's iPhone software gives users an option to track medications and learn about possible drug interactions with other substances, including marijuana. As the cannabis legalization movement has evolved, the technology giant has been gradually revising policies over the years that generally align with the normalization of cannabis. And the latest example is in the iOS 16 update to Apple's health app. Users can tell the health app if they use alcohol, tobacco, or cannabis to search for potential interactions between medications on your list. A footnote on the press release about the health app update last week said that the medication and interaction information is evidence-based content licensed from, let's see if I can pronounce this, Elsevier, a leading publisher of health and science information. It also goes on to disclaim that, and quote, the medications feature should not be used as a substitute for professional medical judgment, end quote. But considering how many states have legalized marijuana for medical purposes, I do believe this is a great step in the direction of not only normalizing it as medicine, but empowering people with their own data to unlock key findings in relationship to their personal overall health and well-being. This also comes after Apple last year ended its policy of restricting cannabis companies from conducting business on its app store. 
and kind of going into the third article because I wanted to reference the same link. So in the footnotes, you will see the links for these. So basically it's the same article from the Apple health update, but it goes on to discuss more technology and social media censorship, which I think is worth mentioning. So it goes on to say as a result of Apple easing their policy on restricting cannabis companies for doing business, the marijuana delivery service Ease subsequently announced that consumers were able to shop and pay for products on its iPhone app for the first time. So basically when Apple changed their policy Ease, which is a delivery platform had basically like they entered the market with their app and were able to actually start making transactions for the first time ever. The article goes on to highlight a couple other kind of notable details about different tech companies and their interactions with cannabis and cannabis censorship on these social media platforms. So Amazon's recent announcement that it will no longer be drug testing workers for cannabis is another sign that major tech firms are embracing cannabis's political and social ascendance. Another point said earlier this year, New York marijuana regulators asked TikTok to end its ban on advertising that involves the word, quote, cannabis, as they work to promote public education on the state's move to legalize. On Facebook, state legal cannabis businesses, advocacy groups, and government entities like the California Bureau of Cannabis Control have complained of being shadow banned, where their profile pages do not show up on a conventional search. There were reports in 2018 that the social media giant would be loosening its restrictive cannabis policies, but it's very unclear what steps it's taken to achieve that. And as somebody who spends a lot of time on Instagram and Facebook for her brands, which are cannabis related, I can tell you that they are very much still censoring. I'd be curious if obviously these apps know geographically where you're located, if they're taking more offense to people in states perhaps like Texas, like me, where we don't have full cannabis legalization. So it's just a hypothesis. I'm not, (laughs) there's no factual proof of that. But again, I think there's a lot of technology driving sometimes how the algorithm is processing who shows and gets shown what content, right? Another point in 2020, Twitter started partnering with a federal drug agency to promote substance misuse treatment resources when users of the social media platform search for, quote, marijuana or certain other substance related keywords. But no such health warning appears with results for alcohol connected terms. And that's in contrast to Apple and Google's App Hub, which updated its policy in 2019 to explicitly prohibit programs that connect users with cannabis, no matter whether it is legal in the jurisdiction where the user lives or not. So that kind of answers my previous statement, right? Despite marijuana firms being banned from Google's app market, some of the company's top officials seem pretty bullish about loosening cannabis laws. Co-founder of Google, Sergey Brin, joked about supplying employees with joints at a post-election meeting in 2016. Obviously, 2016 was forever and forever ago. But again, I thought that these roundups of where some of these tech companies sit in relationship to cannabis was super informative to help frame the current social landscape when it comes to leveraging these tech platforms for business, commerce, community, and more. As always, if anything I shared inspired you or made you outraged, please reach out and let's discuss why. And I'll include links to those articles in the show notes for reference below. Also want to mention, I am now releasing video versions of these episodes. They are raw. They are unedited, but they are also video, which I totally get maybe more engaging for some of you. So if you would like to check those out, that link will also be in the show notes for this specific episode, but you can find me on YouTube if you search. Shaded Tarabi, and you'll see all the other videos that I have done and all future videos, especially if you hit subscribe once you get there. So you'll be alerted anytime I go live and a new video gets updated. 
So with all of that out of the way, we can now get into today's guest. I hope you're ready because finally we get to have Kim Stuck, the CEO and founder of Allay Consulting on the podcast. Allay offers compliance strategy and services providers serving the hemp, cannabis, and psychedelic industries nationwide. She brings a regulator's keen eye and wide-reaching knowledge on evolving compliance and safety mandates to support businesses in tightly regulated industries. Previously, Kim held a pioneering role as the nation's first cannabis and hemp specialist for a major metropolitan public health authority during her tenure with the city of Denver, which is home to hundreds of cannabis businesses. She worked as an investigator covering cultivation, manufacturing, and retail. Her duties included facility inspections, conducting investigations into improper pesticide use and worker safety, creating regulations, instituting recalls, and public outreach. Kim also holds numerous accreditations, such as Certified Quality Auditor and Certified Professional of Food Safety, among others. In addition to serving on several industry advisory boards, she's a TEDx speaker and has been a member of ASTM International's Cannabis Standards Committee since its 2017 inception and is the vice chair of the CGMP Standards Subcommittee. Don't worry if you don't know what some of those acronyms that stand for. Kim gets into them and then some on the episode today. I've known Kim for a year or so now, and I'm just enamored with what she does and what she knows. So I am thrilled to have her join the show. If you are someone who subscribes to self-regulation or are just curious about how regulators work with the industry, how they might get it wrong sometimes and how they can get it right sometimes, then you'll really love and appreciate this episode. So that's all I've got. Without further ado, let's get straight to the episode. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Kim to the show. Yeah, well, I was born no, <laughs> in Loveland, Colorado. Yeah, so I grew up in Colorado. I am originally from Loveland, which is kind of funny because I have a bunch of clients up there now and it's I never thought that town would have hemp or anything. So I, I graduated from Metro University in Denver with a human nutrition degree. And so I originally wanted to be a nutritionist, right? A registered dietitian or something like that. But I realized really quickly that the hospital setting, I just didn't really love, right? The weird hours and the pay and that, you know, it was just like a whole lot. It's like being a nurse, you know, and I just didn't really have that overnight in me. And so I looked at other options and one of my food safety professors at the time was like, hey, like, have you ever thought about being a health inspector? And I said, and I, at the time I was bartender, <laughs> I was like, you want me to work for the dark side? That's what you're saying. And they're like, no, trust me. They look for people who are in the service industry because people in the service industry tend to understand and be a little more empathetic and, you know, not have like that weird power issue, right? With it, a lot of, as we've all seen in, you know, any kind of position like that. And I said, well, let me, you know, I'll look into it. So I did. I ended up applying. I got the job right out of college, which was like a huge blessing. And so I was health inspector. I did wholesale food manufacturing and restaurant inspections and, you know, was a certified professional in food safety and became later a certified professional or a certified quality auditor, excuse me now, which are like really high level people that are just really good at finding stuff, right? (laughs) I mean, we are just very observant, if you will. And so, yeah, I did that for a little while. And then cannabis became adult use legal, right? In Colorado. And 
everybody kind of looked around and they were like, well, we weren't expecting that to happen. Now what do we do? And so there were all of these, you know, already existing medical facilities that were actually regulated by any kind of health and safety. So no health department was getting involved at all. And they kind of were like, who wants to do cannabis. And I was like the only one that rose, rose her hand. I was like, I do. That sounds awesome, you know? And so, yeah, it did. Yeah, it was great. It was, I actually owe a lot to the department and they're still, you know, we talk to them regularly. They're a great company over there. Company, they're the government. But in Denver, they're, the health department there is pretty amazing. And so, yeah, I just learned a lot. I did that. I was their cannabis specialist for a little over three years before I really started seeing some patterns that were a little alarming, right? So there was no consultants. There was no help for the industry understanding what they're supposed to do or what they're supposed to say or, you know, anything like that. Like, it was just like, hey, we're coming in. This is contaminated. You should have done this, this and this and really not even that much information. And then we put everything on hold and dispose of things. And we did a lot of recalls, a lot of disposals during the time I was there. It was millions and millions of dollars, sometimes in one day. A lot of people went out of business. And in my mind, I just kept thinking like, why can't we just tell them what they're supposed to be doing? And, you know, my, I remember my boss looking at me and being like, you can't, you're not a consultant. You are not allowed to give them advice. You, they have to follow the law and your job is just to make sure that they're following the law and that's it. And I'm just like, okay, there's got to be somebody out there that can help them. Did a bunch of Google searches. There was no consultants that did what I could do. And that was when the light bulb went off and I said, okay, I need to help this industry because through the years that I was there, I totally fell in love with the people. You know, I was just like, this is like where I belong. Nobody's really malicious. They just don't know what they don't know and keep messing up, you know? And it was like, if somebody could just explain it to them in a way that makes sense and train their staff correctly and make sure their SOPs are the way that they should be and all of that, like they would be set up for success instead of failure. And so I launched my company in 2017. So we've been around for over five years now, which is like insane to me because it feels like I just started it yesterday. And yeah, that's what we really focus on. So we obviously we help with state regulations, but that's the easiest set of regulations that we deal with. We are more focused on FDA, OSHA, GMP certification, ISO certification, GACP certification, organic certification, those kinds of things. So the more higher level like companies that are, thinking, hey, I want to be around when the FDA starts regulating and not get shut down, or I want to mitigate risk and make sure I'm making safe products so I don't have to, you know, I don't have to have a recall or go through all these things. Or we have investors that hire us to do audits, you know, just to make sure that their investment is safe from that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's what our company really does. We conduct audits and write SOPs and train staff and really handhold a company through the entire process to reach whatever goal they want to reach when it comes to compliance. That's very cool to hear how you kind of got into the industry. I always love learning that little tidbit, obviously getting to like talk to people and not just like know them at their professional level, but also like the journey of how they got into the industry. And so it makes sense, especially kind of, you know, their positioning early on thinking, like you said, they don't want someone who's going to come in and like do a power trip. They want people who you know, potentially come from within and they're more understanding of, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. And so very neat to see the transitional opportunity and also kudos for you for being like cannabis. Like, yes, I will raise my hand and I will step into that role. And I can't imagine just the thing you 
saw to that extent, right? Because I think the industry, like even presently, I mean, you're mentioning being in business for five years, obviously it changes on a quarterly basis, <laughs> monthly, yearly. And so the amount of regulatory changes that I'm sure that you have both participated in and enforced has been a lot. You now also mentioned a lot of different certifications, which I do want to touch on because I think that Again, some are familiar for me. I'm sure some are familiar for the listeners and the audience, but maybe they're not familiar with the full breadth of that. But before we go into that, I really want to kind of step back and kind of like pick apart, I guess, and frame it up for us. You were mentioning some of these initial brands that you were working with in Colorado as a regulator. You couldn't consult them or advise them at the time because of your status being, you know, the government entity. But what those things that people were, I guess, like getting offenses for? And are those still the same things you see now presently? Like just my limited understanding, I've never worked professionally in the Colorado cannabis industry, but I have family in Colorado and my listeners know I spend a lot of time in Colorado. So out of all the states, I feel most close to understanding it in, independent of my own state here in Texas, but just understanding the label changes, right? Packaging changes, childproof, things like that. So I think those are some of the more blatant things I would imagine someone, you know, their label is wrong. So, hey, you got to chunk the labels and relabel everything. And I've heard of companies who would do labels externally and then they brought it in-house because the changes were so rampant in Colorado in those early years that they were just constantly having to make changes. You you should have it in-house. But I really get a pulse on like, what was it like then? Like what were people getting flagged for versus like maybe now? And maybe it's the same, but I'd just be curious if there's any, you know, have we like learned? Because you think that there is some evolution. Like I don't see quite as much kind of, you know, penalties around label. I think for the most part of state as we come online, they're learning from other markets. So it's not as, you know, starting from zero really, right? So. Yeah. And it depends on what state you're in. I mean, we work in all 50 states. We even work in like Canada and Mexico and Israel and South Africa. So like everywhere is kind of different. And and when I go work in Colorado, I have completely different conversations than if I go and work with my New York clients, for instance, because they're still coming online. And a lot of people in new states that are coming online, they don't really understand how things work. Right. So they're still in that like learning. Like I'm teaching people how to wash their freaking hands instead of like, oh, this is how you write a CAPA plan. <laughs> you know, like there's a huge learning curve with everything. You're like so, crawl before you walk. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so there's different levels, different states are kind of getting it, you know, because they've been around longer and that kind of thing. But back when I was a regulator, mostly it was unsafe product in the market that was our biggest issue. That's where recalls and, and things like that happen, right? So we would have something like we had a granola bar that was being made and the oats that they were using accidentally got peanuts in it. And it was an allergen that was in their bars that wasn't claimed and could potentially, you know, obviously hurt people. So we had to recall all that. I mean, that happens in wholesale food manufacturing all the time. Like people are like, oh, if you get a recall, you're like the worst company ever. Absolutely not. Every single company is going to go through a recall. Every single one. It's how they handle it. And if they can do it efficiently and get it done quickly or catch it before it even goes out the door, which is like the real GMP process that we want, then you're okay. It's really people, you know, when I was disposing of like $4 million in a day of product, it was usually because there was a contamination issue, right? So molds, yeast problems, or heavy metals, pesticides mostly. I feel like back in 2015, most of my recalls were from illegal pesticides that weren't 
warranted for cannabis use. And when that that really quick too, before they were like, obviously presently people have to get their product tested and have a COA that should produce if there is any heavy metals or pesticides present. Also, we know that there is a lot of, you know, handshakes and winks and nods to get test results changed in the favor of not reporting some of these negative things. But I'm curious back then, were those things popping up because there wasn't even like expectation to have things tested? Like why was that so rampant? Yeah. So we, oh my gosh, when we were writing the regulations, we didn't know anything about cannabis. And this is every single regulatory body on the face of the planet. They don't know anything about cannabis. So we were thinking, oh, you know, with a pesticide thing, didn't even think about that. So pesticide testing wasn't even a part of the regulations in the beginning, right? Which was a huge issue because when you have mycobutanol, which is highly carcinogenic, imidacloprid, spiromethacin, all of these things were being used. And so that we had to change the regulations, right? And then they, they changed them to be like, okay, this is the list of the most dangerous pesticides that they could think of, you know, at the time, please don't use them. And then we would test product. The problem is, is that when you test, this is what uh, all the things we ran into. First of all, we ran into a lot of bumps. So this is just one of many, but they would test the flower, right? And it would come back at the threshold or below the threshold that's required. Well, then we go, okay, that cannabis is clean. We're good. They send it to an extractor, they extract it down, and now that little extract has 10 times the amount of mycobutanol that was showing up in the plant, right? So it doesn't get rid of it. Extraction process actually, like, you know, concentrates it. Concentrates it, yeah, to a degree that it was, I was literally finding like shatter and wax that was like 56% mycobutanol. So more toxic poison in it than actual THC, right? And so the, those were huge issues because when you have like grapes, like mycobutanol is used on grapes because it's for powdery mildew and things like that. And with grapes, you know, you, you're supposed to take them home. You're supposed to wash them off and then eat them, right? And so it's a very low amount. And when you eat something, it goes through your entire system. You've got your kidneys and your liver like filtering out those poisons. We can actually handle quite a bit of poison in our body and our body takes care of it because it's awesome, you know? But when you put something in a dab rig and directly inhale it directly, yeah, your bloodstream without any filters, that's when it's a real problem. And that's why people are like, why can we allow this on produce, but it's not allowed on cannabis? And I'm like, because of the way that we ingest cannabis, that's why it's really, really dangerous in that way. So we would have to dispose. And this is like the worst. So, and this happened all the time. So much of GMP, and so if you get GMP certification, this would be something you wouldn't have to deal with, but it's all about tracking and tracing, right? Finding all of the ingredients that are going into this product, what happened to the product when you made it, and then where it went and went out the door, right? And who it was sold to. So that if you have a recall, if you catch something happening, hopefully you catch it before you get sold, which is a lot of things are in place to do that. But if not, then it gets sold. And if something gets sold, you find out that it's contaminated, you can do a recall really quickly. These are the numbers. This is what the package looks like. These are the items, like please return them or whatever. You should be able to go through that. But most companies back then had nothing in place. And metric is not a track and trace system. It only tracks THC. It doesn't track anything else. So it's essentially worthless from a GMP standpoint, unfortunately. So what we were finding is that we would find these concentrates. We'd go back to the extraction facility that made them, find out which grow made them, 
or, you know, grew the plant that went into them, track it all the way back ourselves, which was a nightmare and took forever. And then once we did that, if they didn't have any records, if nobody had any records in place that said that this concentrate only came from this, this one time, you know, da 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 then we would have to do what we call an any and all. Because if you can't prove that this is the only batch that was contaminated, we have to assume that every batch that you ever made is contaminated. And so everything that you've ever made in your entire company goes through a recall. Yeah, which is expensive, devastating to a company. But that is like why we push like track and trace systems, real track and trace systems, not just THC track and trace systems, but real ones in place so that, you know, and making sure that you can go through those things without a huge level of headache. And that's one of the reasons why. But we did so many any and all recalls when I was there. I mean, it was just like insane. I mean, there's a reason why I left. I was like, I cannot watch another one of these companies go under because they just didn't know to do these things. I'm just going to ask, what is the percentage of companies who have to go through an any and all that actually survive and are still in business today? Because to your earlier point, right, it's kind of, you know, par for the course. Like when you're dealing with manufacturing and products, it's so inevitable that I think there's going to be faults that pop up. And obviously you want to have good systems in place so you can recall things. But at the same time, I'm just curious, given how and maybe it's kind of like a two-part question because you're talking in my brain is like, yes, like I have so many follow-ups to that. <laughs> How do you work kind of with the state now in your position of like handling all of these recalls or handling all these businesses that like to me, because it's not required, right? The regulation is required, but the good practices, GMP being one of them, isn't required. So I can't imagine how many businesses operating kind of just like fingers crossed, like you're here we go. We're just doing it without having certain protocols in place and just kind of like what the relationship is to the actual state who's regulating that client. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So most companies that I put through an any and all did not make it, unfortunately. I mean, not, you know, it was very few because some of the bigger companies that I would do recalls for, you know, they are still around. I mean, their their recall was massive, right? And they had to dispose of a lot of stuff and they went through a lot of hardships. I mean, there's still a few that I was with. And then there are a lot that like did have stuff in place. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you actually, okay, we're good. Yes. And it's easy like, to go kind of like recall and go through the process and kind of like move on from it. Yeah. And so, you know, it was kind of a mixed bad. I would say that 90% of especially hemp companies right now, they would fail an FDA audit right off the bat because they've never been regulated when it comes to health and safety. So, you know, you were saying like, oh, you know, none of these are required and da da, da. Very true. In most places, these kinds of basic food safety and GMP things are not required, which is like absolutely terrifying from a public health standpoint. But it's becoming a trend that it's more and more required. This And my my examples are, I mean, Florida requires GMP certification before you can even get a license. New York is doing the same thing. Michigan GMP is in their regulations. You know, Massachusetts is starting to like have some stuff. Maryland, they require GMP 111 and 117, which is supplement and food GMP required for to be able to produce stuff. So 
there's a lot of things and a lot of states that are starting. It's a, it's not a trend. It's kind of the way that the world is. Wholesale food manufacturers have been using this for over a hundred years and keeping people safe in this way. So it's not reinventing the wheel. It's not anything that other companies haven't dealt with before. It's just that cannabis is very different than like a regular brownie company, you know, and because GMP is so old school, applying their standards to cannabis can be a little tricky, but there are some accredited certifying bodies that have a specific GMP standard and it's awesome. In fact, our company helps them, you know, write those standards. I'm also on the ASTM. I'm the vice chair of the ASTM GMP subcommittee. So I write GMP regulations all the time, which is super boring and geeky, but it's, you know. That's so needed. Yeah. As the industry continues to trend towards, like you're saying, these other industries have adopted these good manufacturing practices and it's still just going to like new to cannabis. I think my observation a little bit too, coming from much like the hemp side where we don't even have a metric like that I have to report into. So I know it's not tracking batches and things like that, obviously, but like literally like hemp is not regulated at all. And that's kind of a big scary hole where in states like Texas, obviously the size of us, we very like, you know, incoming hemp market. So this is kind of like a twist for you. I'm curious what your thoughts are. We have regulators. I'd love if they were listening to the podcast right now. Like I'd love to meet my local state regulators, but they don't really regulate actually, you know? And so there was initially when the business, no, sorry, not the business, when the industry opened up here in Texas in 2019, there was a little bit of a sentiment. You had certain brands like myself who were like, well, I'm going to go get my license. Like I'm going to give my information to the government. I want to be regulated. I want to be you know, a participant in this program. And on the other end, you had people who were like, oh, they can come get when they, when they, you know, catch me. And you're like, what the fuck does that even mean? But here we are, you know, four plus, you know, something years later. And I don't think, you know, I know anybody who has actually been regulated by our Department of State Health Services, who is, who regulates hemp in the state. So is that normal? Is that traditional from your experience that there are regulatory bodies, but they're not actually active and maybe it's different from hemp marijuana? I'm just curious what you kind of think of that environment where, well, I need to be self-regulated. I got to hire a Kim. I got to hire a team who's going to help make sure that if I want to keep my business here for the long haul, I probably do need to give a shit about certifications and at least try to set my business up for success, knowing that nobody's regulating me now, but they will tomorrow. Maybe they will in a year, a month. I mean, you know, 10 years, et cetera, things like that. So I'm just curious, what's the kind of take on hemp versus marijuana regulations or regulators, I should say, and the lack of regulation in some states? Is it just kind of Texas or do you find that a lot more states are really not regulating? Yeah, it's a trend and it's mainly because of bandwidth, right? So you look at Oklahoma, for instance, right? So they have their regular state health department. And here's the thing, there's layers. So there's usually a county health department, right? Which is your local. So there's like a Denver health department, right? And then there's a Colorado health department. And then there's the FDA, which is national. So people don't really realize that there are different levels. And so, you know, like Denver County, we always regulated because our like local health department was very, very strong because it's Denver, right? If there's an outbreak in Denver, it's a huge issue. It's like national news. Whereas some of the smaller counties they just don't get involved at all. And it's not that, well, and some regulators do not want to go out and regulate cannabis. <laughs> that is the truth. Some of them are just like, that's just too much for me. I'm like, okay. But 
you know, it is their job, right? And the problem that they're having is like, you look at Oklahoma, for instance, you know, they maybe have 15, 20 health inspectors for their state health department, right? It's Oklahoma, you know, they travel around, they all or just for cannabis? No, the entire state, because each of their counties has their own health department, right? So there's a lot of people, but it's not, it's not a lot. They don't need a lot of people for just their restaurants and wholesale food. But when you have 14,000 licenses come in overnight, I mean, you have to hire 40 plus people, right? To be able to keep up with that. And even then they're not trained. They don't know anything about cannabis. They're, you know, usually pretty green, even to like the food safety side of everything. It's a challenge, right? And ramping that up. The FDA kind of has the same issue. So people are like, okay, they're saying that CBD is possibly like, it's possible, like they don't want to regulate it because it's possible that it's not good for you, right? Even though it's been consumed by a bunch of people for a very long time and like nothing really terrible has happened yet. But it should be regulated because there are a lot of food safety things that can go wrong despite the CBD itself. And it should be regulated just like everything else. But they just don't have the bandwidth because, you know, I talk with FDA people all the time, obviously. And they're just like, well, we could just like say it's banned. And I was like, well, good luck with that because you haven't been regulating it at all. I mean, all these people have these businesses. Do you have the bandwidth to go out and bust everybody? Absolutely not. So I don't think that they're going to go the route of being like, we're just not going to do CBD. I mean, they're past that point at this point. But at the same time, it's like, that's what's going on. And that's what's happening in every single state. Every single state does not have enough regulators who are trained to be able to regulate cannabis properly. And there are some states that the health department maybe is getting involved with hemp, but because they have a department of revenue that's regulating the THC cannabis side, the health department's not regulating that. It's very, very strange and a little backwards in my Why opinion. Why is it put but through revenue? Is it because of the tax opportunity of cannabis? Yes, I think so. So like the MED in Colorado, that's Department of Revenue. OLCC in Oregon, Department of Revenue. So the Department of Revenue is usually the department that is running the cannabis, you know, cannabis industry. And then the health department is like invited to come in if they feel like it, if they can, you know, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why primary? Yeah, you would think. And that's the other thing is we had a lot of miscommunication between departments. Like I would be health department and then we'd have the MED and I'd be like, they'd be like calling us, asking us, hey, is this supposed to be like this? And we're like, no, where are you? Like, oh my God, no, you know, they are not supposed to be open blasting and, you know, like, and the OLCC just didn't know because in their regulations, they don't cover any of that, right? The only thing that they cover is like licensing fees and, oh, have these SOPs, you know, in Colorado, They've started requiring CAPA plans and recall plans and sampling plans and testing and those kinds of things. But in the beginning, it was really they were just worried about licensing and fees. So it's kind of weird. Yeah. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. 
No, it's definitely one of those things. The more that I dig into the industry and have obviously these types of enlightening conversations, it's like we're not getting (laughs) federal legalization anytime soon, in my opinion. I don't know if you have a similar, you know, stance just because you kind of come from the side of actually seeing the infrastructure that needs to be in place to operate something like that. But my tune of federal legalization has changed. I think when I was a consumer, it was, yeah, I want legal weed, flip the light switch on. Like, why can't you just vote it in and let's legalize it? And Colorado is a great example. I've talked about this on previous episodes too, even just like hospitality licenses, right? The place and space to consume legally. As a tourist, you assume, oh, marijuana is legal in Colorado. I'm going to go consume, not realizing, and obviously nobody's regulating it and enforcing it or, or punishing you. But the law technically up until recently... There was no hospitality, you know, language. So there wasn't any parameters for it. And so to see a state that is so historical, like a leader in this industry and in this conversation, watch the progression of how they've kind of like realized like, oh, we actually need policy on that. And like, oh, we actually need to like go implement this thing. You're just like scratching your head. Like, yeah, this is, it's so new territory that I feel for the government entities because it is a little bit like the people are asking for it to be legal and they're kind of, you know, sometimes caught in the middle of other politics where it's legal now, but they haven't made the right hires, they haven't done the right training. And so I'm curious from your perspective, do you work now with state regulators? Like, can they hire you as a consultant to make their programs better? Because I imagine if, you know, they're getting hired into this job or they're in this job and all of a sudden now, you know, they have to regulate cannabis and they have no background in cannabis. They have perhaps even consumed it. It's like, how do you regulate something that you don't really even know about? So yeah, that's the challenge right there. Yes. So it's kind of interesting. We ended up doing a whole lot more than we set out for in the beginning. At least, I mean, I personally, I just wanted to be a lone wolf that was just making enough money to pay my bills and doing something that I love in the industry. I love But we obviously got really busy really quick. I mean, I remember when I was talking to you at the conference, I was like, we just blew up overnight and I like didn't even know how to handle it. Like I couldn't, I had to hire. I mean, it was just the weirdest thing. But yeah, so we we work directly with clients, right? Just like business owners and, you know, doing compliance and all that. But I personally, you know, I don't take on clients anymore unless they're government clients. So I Mm. will go in and help them look at their department and get rid of all the bullshit, if you will, because a lot of departments are run very efficiently. And when it comes to cannabis, there are good ways to do things and bad ways to do things in departments. And we've seen it all, right? And then we also train regulators just even on the basics of cannabis. Like what is an ethanol extraction? What does that look like? You know, if you see this, this there's probably something wrong or understanding terpenes, understanding, you know, the different cannabinoids, understanding the plant and the growth cycle, understanding, you know, just things that, because when you walk into a facility and I was one of them, you know, I grew up in Colorado, so I had smoked cannabis, but that was about it. I didn't understand anything about extraction or how to grow or anything like that. So it was a Total, like, thank God that the industry was like happy about being regulated because I mean, I don't know what I would do without my Denver people, my operators in Denver that like, come in, I'll teach you all about it. Like, it was so amazing. I I learned so, so much from the industry, but it was terrifying walking into a facility when you're the regulator and you know nothing about what's going on. It is like the worst position in the world to be in. And so, yes, 
Our company does do that. We've worked with several different states just to train their their people. I mean, we've trained, we've even trained Department of Revenue departments about what a CAPA plan is and how to evaluate it because they're like, now this isn't our regulations, but we're not food safety people. We don't know what a corrective action, preventive action plan is. Can you walk us through it so we know how to regulate this, you know? So we do all kinds of things for the government. Me and my team are on several of the life science and policy work groups in several different states. I'm on the psilocybin work group to help write their regulations. I mean, we try to be involved in that government process as much as possible, because if we can help the regulators understand it more and get rid of their bias, it becomes much, much easier for the industry to operate. And it creates a good like symbiotic relationship with them and the industry, and it creates trust as well. And then the other thing that I do is expert witness work as well, so that these lawsuits are going to happen. They are already happening and there's a lot of things going down. So those are kind of the like high level things that LA does is like, you know, those more high level dealing with regulators in the government and making that, helping them understand and helping them not see the industry as a demonized entity, if you will, because it is, you know, easy to do. And we run into that all the time. You know, we'll, we go on site a lot when there's regulators present because our Clients are like, can you get here? We're freaking out. And I'm like, it's okay. We'll be there. And, you know, we know how to talk to them like they're human beings because we used to be them. In fact, everyone on my team is an ex-cannabis regular. And, you know, we know what they feel like and we know how weird that is to be in that position. So we try to kind of bridge that gap a little bit and make it a little easier on them and in turn easier on our clients. Because if you create that relationship, that's a good relationship with your regulator you're going to be a Friday night audit instead of a Monday morning audit, which is what you always want to be because why you know, is the difference? <laughs> so the Monday morning audit is the, I know this place, they're trouble every time they're total jerks and they're going to keep me there. I'm going to find stuff and I'm going to be there for hours and hours and hours. The Friday night ones are the ones where it's like, oh, well, it's Friday at two. I'm going to go do my fun, easy people that I like that are nice to me so that I know no weird stuff is going to happen. I'm going to get stuck there until 10 o'clock on a Friday, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The regulators really do think that way. They have their favorites. They are people. And, you know, if you're good to them, you need to push back a little. Don't just cave on everything. I'm not saying that. But, you know, if you're nice to them and treat them like human beings, it's amazing, you know, how far you can get and how how much more easy your life can become if you are known as like the easier people to deal with. So it goes back though to that. I think most people do. And I kind of take that stance personally as well. Like we are selling consumer packaged goods. Like people are consuming our products. They're inhaling our products. Like if you want to be in the industry long-term, like you should care about those things. And so you should have some sort of Again, self-regulation is kind of like that first step, but then also building that relationship with the regulators to ensure, and it's not that it's always a perfect, right? Like there are mistakes, I think on both ends, just kind of where I feel the industry is in a gray area, obviously the majority of the time, because I find sometimes what the regulation says is an interpretation of legislation. And so like in Texas, we're dealing with that right now. The state has legalized hemp less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, but our regulation is coming out saying, oh, well, this includes Delta 8 THC, so it's actually illegal. And we're like, well, it's only illegal in regulation. It's not illegal legislation. And I think that case is still in the Supreme Court of Texas, but it kind of comes down to that as a brand, you're, you're kind of making bets on 
okay, well, if it's not in law, then technically what's the worst they're going to do to me? Are they going to slap me on the wrist? Are they going to remove my license? And so we're kind of watching that also in Texas right now with the smokable hemp ban. They imposed that. And now I'm like, I can't manufacture in the state. Where's the regulator telling me I can't manufacture in the state? Like they're not showing up. You know what I mean? So it's that's the back to the bandwidth problem. You know, it's like they just don't have enough people to be able to go out and regulate. And, you know, we have a lot of Delta 8 clients, actually. Like for some reason, I feel like people think that I'm like anti-Delta 8 and I'm not. Obviously, we have Delta 8 clients. What I am anti is having any cannabinoid or anything in the market that is unregulated. And that's the problem. So our Delta 8 people, we do have a, a couple Texas people. They're doing everything they can to be as legitimate as possible so that they can be the shining star that people look to and go, oh, well, this Delta 8 company is doing it the right way. And they're making safe products and, you know, da, 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 maybe this is okay. And they're going and speaking at these things and commenting and doing all that, the stuff that they should be doing to keep their industry alive. But yeah, I mean, if you're a Delta 8 company and you want to look legitimate, they are way less likely to shut you down if you have something like GMP certification. If you're showing them like I'm operating at the standards of the FDA, I'm a badass, like they're way less likely to shut you down than if you're making it in your basement and selling it at 7-Eleven, you know? And that's the problem is there's no way for the consumer to tell which is which, except for that GMP certification that's on their website or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people just don't even know to look for that. They're learning. I feel like a lot of consumers are starting to be like, well, now that I know what it is, you know, now I'm going to look for that, which is great. But it's been a long time coming, I think. <laughs> and I think that, you know, there are people, I mean, there's even THCO and HHC, you know, people who are like, hey, what does GMP look like? What can I do to get this? You know, and I think that that's a good route to go if you're making those kinds of products and every state is different. And the thing is with GMP is to be GMP compliant, you also have to be within the law of the state as well. So like they couldn't give a Delta 8 company a GMP certification in Colorado because it's illegal there. But like Texas and like Alabama, I mean, there's, a, there's quite Florida, you know, there's some states that are allowing it. And as long as they allow it, then, you know, it's fine to get those kinds of certifications. And just like New York and several other states, they could just come out at any time and say, hey, if you're if you're a hemp product, you have to have GMP and that's it. And you can't even, you know, and that would be a way to eliminate a lot of issues and, and the bandwidth problem. Right. So if they're getting a GMP certification, they're essentially regulated by an accredited third party. So it makes it so the regulators don't have to be there all the time. So it kind of takes that off their plate and they just don't license people that don't have it. You know, so those there's like I've heard that argument a bunch of like people being like, OK, we might just say, you know, like even in Oregon, they're kind of having that conversation of like, should we just require for all hemp products, including CBD and everything else? Just, hey, if you're going to get a license, you have to have GMP within six months or whatever it might be. And those kinds of things are changing. And I think as long as you're aware of it and you're thinking about it, at least hopefully it doesn't blindside your company. But I feel like a lot of people, you know, they're not even realizing it. They're not thinking about it. And when it does happen, then they're just going to literally go out of business. And that's just really sad. I want as many companies that got into this early and are small, you know, and can grow, you know, I want them to do that. So I'm hoping that people are at least thinking about this and it's on their radar and, you know, can make the changes that they need to make when they need to make them. So we'll see though. It's it's a long process. GMP is not 
something that happens overnight, unfortunately. So no, and that's what I want to kind of you know, turn to next. You were talking about obviously GMP, organic certification, FDA. Like, what is the spectrum of certifications that are kind of out there? It sounds like GMP is most important. I love to learn. I mean, I know what GMP stands for, but also like the parameters of like what is included in GMP and kind of the expectation from the industry perspective. Is it like GMP is kind of like the best one to have than everything else is looking at the legal states. Does Oregon require that? I know Oregon, at least from what I've heard, has organic agriculture practices just as a state across the board. So you look at that state and then it's you know, do they also have to get organic certified or is the state already like forcing everybody to be organic certified? So I'm just curious about these different certifications and what they entail and kind of, you know, what people should at least be putting on their radar. Like, oh, I need to make sure I'm doing G. I need to make sure I'm doing organic as a preference. I think it's, you know, not everybody wants to eat organic or consume organic, but it is becoming more popular trying to, at least from a market perspective, it's a label claim. I've heard kind of, you know, to kind of like dual opinions on it. So again, really curious on the different certifications and what you would prioritize and what kind of goes into, especially probably GMP. Like what does that actually mean to turn on? So you're right. The state of Oregon has a lot of organic practices in place because we have an ecosystem here that we're trying to like save, right? I mean, Oregon is just a very green state to begin with. And so a lot of the farmers out here do have organic practices. But the problem is, is the USDA organic certification is a federal certification. So if you are in the THC category, you can't get it. And that's the issue. So so there really isn't like organic THC farms out here. People have organic practices in place, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are organic because they don't have the certification. When it comes to hemp, though, you can absolutely get an organic certification for your cultivation and in your manufacturing facility. So we, we've we been helping people with that. But what's funny is that also includes Delta 8 and Delta 10. And so it's just the Delta 9 THC that they can't do it for, which is like funny and ridiculous in my mind. But, you know, that's the way it goes right now. So you're right. I mean, it just depends on if you're a hemp producer or not. When it comes to GMP, so GMP is really that like base standard for all food safety and quality assurance. So it covers a, a whole plethora of things, including a little bit of OSHA and fire prevention plans. And, you know, so it's really like beginning to end, you evaluate your process for risk, you take out the risk when necessary or put procedures in place to stop things from happening to your product. That's really all it is. It's a track and trace system from beginning to end, corrective action, preventive action plans, HACCP plans, food safety plans training, documentation, all of that fun stuff, making sure your equipment stays up to date and you're, you know, calibrating things regularly. I mean, it just covers like everything in the whole facility to make sure that the product that you're making is as safe as it possibly can be. That's like why it exists. With that, there's an organization null ISO 9001 that can be stacked on top of that, which is really easy because their requirements are like almost exactly the same. I think the ISO 9000, and it's it's literally like documentation tracking and making sure your organization is communicating very well with each other, that kind of thing. I mean, it's really, and there's HR included and, and OSHA and that kind of stuff too. So it's it's a really good certification that people like stacked on top of it. 
that's about 23 billable hours on our end added, which is like practically nothing to just get that on top of the GMP. So sometimes people bundle them together and a lot of accredited certifying bodies will do that in one audit. So you only have to pay for one audit to get both of them. So yeah, it's kind of nice. ISO 22000, which is what Canada is trying to require for all their manufacturing. That is essentially GMP on crack. So in order to sell internationally, ISO 22000 is what you need. So to go to most countries, some countries don't, but like if you're going to go sell in Europe or, you know, France or Germany or, you know, whatever, they do require that kind of thing, which is why Canada was really smart in saying, maybe we should just require ISO 22000 in all of our facilities, all of Canada, because when the global market happens, Canada will be set up. Every facility in Canada will be able to sell internationally immediately. So they will essentially dominate the global market overnight. And the United States will be like, do to do, we're not even regulating. You know, it's like insane to me that Canada has their shit together so well. So yeah, so that's kind of like the hierarchy. So GMP is really just like a base level, which sounds funny because it's a lot of work and it's hard to get. But really, that's like the minimum of what is required for like products to be sold at like Walgreens or King Supers or you know, whatever. So like, you're not going to be able to sell your stuff on Amazon in the future or any of those, unless you have at least GMP certification. And sometimes they require it from like a certain accredited certifying body or a certain level, or they might even require more. And then GACP, which is good agricultural and, oh my gosh, good agricultural and collection practices. They like change it was GAP, which is good agricultural practices. So it's a certification that is like GMP, but for cultivations. So that is becoming more and more popular as well because it is, it's tracking all of their nutrients and all of their pesticides. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times people will test something and call me and be like, we have heavy metals, like lead in our tinctures. What is going on? And I'm like, what? Did you change anything? And we'll go in and we'll look at everything. And sure enough, it's a nutrient that somebody got at a you know, a trade show to try out in this one batch to see if it works really. And sure enough, it has lead in it, you know, so you have to like test and like, I mean, that's what GMPs are all about is like preventing things from happening before they happen. So yeah, so those are like the the main I'm like, it's GMP, it's ISO, and then GACP, and then organic for the hemp farmers. Those are like the main certifications. And then the other thing that we've been seeing is GMP for CFR 211, which is pharmaceutical grade. And we actually have two clients now that are building pharmaceutical facilities because they're worried that the FDA is going to come out and say, if you're not to this standard, then you can't make products. So, and that's the problem is nobody really knows what the FDA is going to say or what is going to be required in the future. So most of my clients are just setting it up to what they think might happen and then, you know, rolling with the punches on what actually does happen. So we'll just if you have the funds and you know that you're trying to build a facility out or build a business out for the long haul, it is probably in your best interest to do it up front and kind of like that first instance or that first take versus adding on these certifications later. You mentioned Florida requires GMP. Are other states requiring GMP? I know some are requiring like, is ISO the same as like ISO certified from a lab perspective as well? Like I've heard of so ISO certified. Lab. ISO. So okay. ISO is a 
bunch of different certifications. So there's one specifically for lab testing. We don't do labs because I just do not have that expertise, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, they a lot of labs, like different states are requiring that ISO. Yeah, I've heard that yeah. exactly. Being a, you want to work with like an ISO certified lab. So I'm hearing some of these acronyms are like, oh, okay, that I need to give a shit about that thing. Yeah. And, and what's funny is the ISO certification for labs still isn't like, yes, there's track and trace and all that, but it doesn't stop the lab shopping issue at all. So it, you know what I mean? It's just like a whole... You know, it's like, okay, cool, you have ISO, you know, it's a good thing to have, but it still isn't like solving our issue, like that, you know, the big issues that we have with the labs and lab shopping and all that fun stuff. Checking the box off at least for, you know, certain businesses to have it. But okay, so going back, Florida requires GMB. Are there other states that require it presently? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, Maryland, they require you to have two different GMP certifications. So 111 for supplements and 117 for food. So it's, you know, it just depends on what state you're in. Massachusetts, I think, is starting to put some stuff in place. Michigan has GMP written into their regulations where you don't have to test as much if you have a GMP certification. So it cuts down on your testing costs if you get it, but they don't specify exactly how. So we'll see about that once one of my clients gets GMP. It sounds like TSA pre-check. It's like, you still have to go through security, but you don't have to be looked at as much as everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's happening. New York, they've required GMP certification for all of their CBD companies for a while now. We've worked a lot in New York, actually. And so now that's it's looking like that's going to be the trend for the THC cannabis rules as well, which makes sense because from a perspective of bandwidth, if they want to make sure that these companies are following rules and doing good practices, but they don't have enough people to go out and actually check, they just put the onus on the operators and then they have to go get their certification and are regulated by a third party. And that's it, you know? So I understand it, but the upfront cost, I think is what people are, you know, they're a little like, oh my gosh, I have to pay this money now. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's like $60,000 now or you know, you have major issues later or the The repercussion. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is like, okay, you can do GMP in in house or whatever. It might take you a while to get it. It's fine. You know, you might have to pay that upfront cost, but I mean, metric tags and doing metric forever is also very costly, you know? So it's like, no matter what, there's going to be a cost, you know, which one is just going to be easier for the operator. And I, I think GMP, I mean, like I said, since it's been in place in all other industries for so long, this is not reinventing the wheel. This is not something that, you know, people haven't been doing or have never done before, you know, so I feel, and cannabis people are smart as hell. Like once we get it into a facility, people figure it out and they're like, oh my God, I got this. I got this. And I'm like, yeah, you do. It seems really hard when you look at the big, big iceberg, but when you just like chip off little pieces every day, it goes away pretty quickly and it, it makes it pretty easy for people. So you know, well, and having it is so helpful too. And then looking back at like the hemp to the marijuana side, it's like, I think there's a little bit of tension sometimes because marijuana is so overly regulated in some capacities mm-hmm. compared to hemp. And it's, you know, not fair to yep. some people and to businesses. And so I think it would be great to have parity and just have expectations of this is what it, you know, is expected to operate in the industry. I think the hard part is realizing the financial implications on both sides, the investment that you're making to get the certifications, but also 
if you don't make those investments, what the detriments would cost you. But I think it's also showing how much money is required to operate in the cannabis industry, which is a little bit, you know, I think unsettling for people who just thought like, oh, I'm just going to grow weed. Especially I think like a lot of the legacy market obviously doesn't really love playing with the regulations because it's like, oh, I grow great weed. Just like, let me grow great weed. And like, you know, my people never complain and it's like, I get it. But as we go mainstream, as an industry, you can't like, I always talk about, you can't put the cat back in the bag, like cat's out. So now you just have to evolve with the times, especially like we've been talking about looking at other industries have set these practices up. It's par for the course. So you kind of have to get on board and either, you know, invest the money or move out of the way for the businesses that are going to invest the money to be able to withstand the long haul. I, I don't know. Not everything. I mean, like I said, it, it, you know, it, up front, we have clients that are like, we want this done in four months. And we're like, okay, this is how much it's going to cost to get it done in four months. You realize that. But we have other companies, you know, because we work on like a sliding scale kind of like you can do five hours a month or 40 hours a month. So we have a lot of companies that have been with us for years and they're just on like a 10 or five hour a month contract. And we're slowly getting chipping away at it and honestly just even that is impressive good to know we had a health department go into one of our clients the other day and we've been working with them for about six months on a very small contract just getting things slowly done because they don't have a deadline they don't need it done in six months they just are like we know we want this so we're gonna work support it and oh my gosh they like called me so excited they were like our regulator was so nice and it's all of our stuff and they were so impressed and da, da, da. And I was like, see, because there are so few people that are even thinking about it, that even having like one really good SOP, you're there just like, oh my gosh, these guys are getting it, you know? And it's hilarious. And sometimes they'll, they'll you know, call the regulator or call me to like chat with me for a minute about them. And yeah, no, we're getting them on board. Is there anything you want us to do next that is like the most important that maybe they were missing? You know, and if you create those relationships and you just show that like, hey, I really am trying, sometimes that's all it takes because so many people are not trying at all that even a little bit of try is like, oh my gosh, these guys are trying. Okay, we're going to be good to them. We're going to be nice to them. We're going to help them. And that's sometimes all it takes for the success of a business. And so even just those small little steps, like getting towards it is, you know, you don't need to look, like I said, when you look at the whole thing, people get very overwhelmed. It's a lot of work. It's 46 different documents. Some of them are 70 pages long. I mean, it, it's a very, and training, you have to train a whole bunch and, you know, all the audits and all that stuff. And, you know, you got to change your facility. A lot of times we make you, you know, change where plumbing is and what the floor and ceiling are. And, you know, it's a lot. But if you look at it broken down in a timeline, like, and that's what we do for our clients is like month one, we're doing this month two, we're doing this month three, we're doing this. Then it's like a little more, I don't know, consumable, right? <laughs> like they're like, okay, I can do this. This isn't so hard, you know? And then once we do the trainings and then implement it into the culture of the company, then it just runs itself. Like once we're done with it, we're like, cool, you guys got this because we've trained them to understand it well enough, hopefully, if we did our job right, to be able to walk away and they can keep going. If they need something, they can always call. But like, that's not our goal. Our goal is for them to just like rock it out and understand it and be very confident when regulators do come in. So I don't know. Yeah, no, just implement it and maintain it and manage it, which, yeah, once you do the hard work, the heavy lifting, it is just a system that's in place and just keep maintaining the system. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what people don't get. It's like, if you take metric, if you have to do metric, that's a forever sign up. And yeah, it's only like four, four or 500 bucks a year for the, you know, the 
actual software, sure. But the tags and then tagging everything and all the fines you have to pay if you forget to tag something or if you scan something in wrong or if you get the wrong tags and have to throw those away and order new ones. I mean, I've seen, I'm sure you have too, in other states, like just, it's it's insanity, you know, like all the tags and the waste and the, you know, whereas with GMP, it's just like all in a computer system and that's it, you know? Like you just take care of it yourself. And I think people like that independence, if you will. It is a lot to kind of, you know, orchestrate to make sure that you are in compliance, but obviously compliance is so integral in success in the industry. So it's, you need to, you know, take it serious and invest in it. So I appreciate everything that you've shared so far. I think this is so informative and impactful for people to understand, at least just start to kind of, like you said, just like pick it apart. Maybe you don't do like the full, you know, deep investment of it, but at least be aware of it. How, like look at your own business. How can you start to make some of those implementations and changes and work towards that, knowing that it is to some extent inevitable, like something is coming at a federal level when we get there. Final question is kind of a hot take. I'm curious. I'm sure you've heard of the 1906 issue that popped up recently. They are producing their edibles in multi-states and there was recently a ingredient, I guess, that was discovered as being an herb, like a Chinese herb that caused someone to essentially feel like they were being poisoned because they had consumed too much. I'm assuming because they consumed too much of the product and it accumulated over time in their body. And I don't know like any other details other than just reading kind of like a headline about it. And I was just like, they're a pretty big brand that like, how, how does that happen? If I guess it's the, the perception of, oh, they're a big brand. They must have known better, but yeah. at the same time it can happen <laughs> Anybody. I'm assuming they just change the ingredient and then they do a recall and it's all fine. But yeah, so it just depends, you know, because if somebody, God forbid, is hurt or dies, then, you know, you obviously are liable for a lot of things. I mean, you think back to, I don't know if you remember the like salmonella peanut butter thing that went on. So yeah, the three C, like the CEO, CFO and COO of that peanut butter company that was like, no, it'll be fine. Like, no, no worries. Just because the salmonella sampling came back on our equipment doesn't mean it's in the peanut butter. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to, we don't want to stop production, da, 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 right? Well, then they like hospitalized like 40 something people or, you know, and ended up killing a few people. It was like a whole thing. Those guys are still in prison. Like, I think people don't understand that if you're running a company and you hurt someone, you are liable, you know, it's criminal charges, right? So, and recalls are going to happen no matter what. And that's the problem is there's a lot of risk with anything that is, you know, anything anybody puts in their body, there's always a risk to those kinds of products. The way that we are building these recall plans and Kappa plans and all that, you know, the reason why we want GMPs in place is to be able to tackle those with the most ethical means possible, right? So no matter what, there's going to be something that happens and something gets out. And with that particular instance, it's possible that the supplement that they were adding in was really the issue. It wasn't necessarily the CBD or whatever. It was like the ashwagandha or whatever it was. And they just- Right, the non-psychoactive or psychotropic ingredient. Right, which happens a lot, actually, you know? People take too much, uh, you know, melatonin and they have nightmares or, you know, like it's whatever it may be. And there's always going to be issues because everybody's body is different. It's a matter of how you handle that issue that really matters. And if you handle it in a way that's like, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. We're going to put all this on hold. We're going to go back. We're going to change our formulation. We're going to, 
you know, just like you said, do a recall, do a warning, whatever the regulatory body requires of them, you know, then usually you can show that in court and be like, listen, we were ready for this. We knew it was going to happen. And we acted accordingly. We acted in the best, most ethical way that we possibly could have. You know, their accidents happen. But, you know, if you can act in a way that makes sense and is going to help people, then then you're usually in the good. And I think that's really what it is. No matter who you are, Nestle, you know, I mean, Kellogg's, they all have recalls all the time. Like, it's just a normal thing. Accidents happen. Equipment breaks. Like, it is the way it is. I mean, and, you know, one of the big ones, I think it was Curaleaf for somebody. I forget who it was. One of the bigger brands. But they accidentally mixed up the THC oil with CBD oil. Right. And they made a bunch of people very high that were not supposed to get very high. I mean, that happens. Right. And so being able to address those issues and figure out where the problem is and identify like which batches it was and go through the whole recall process and all of that. That's really what matters, because no matter what, there's human error, no matter what, there's going to be things that go out that maybe shouldn't have. And as long as you're not being a jerk and going, hey, we know there's salmonella on and we're just going to do it anyway, like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, that's not very ethical. If you find an issue, you need to solve it immediately. And that's what all these like different documentations for GMP tell you what to do. I mean, that's essentially all they are. They're a playbook of like worst case scenario. Hey, what happens if you stumble, you know, one of your employees stumbles across, you know, metal shards in your chocolate? What do you do? What is what is their next action to prevent it from going out the door? So there's just a lot of things like that that need to be in place that sometimes aren't. And it's pretty evident that even the big boys don't necessarily have it figured out. In fact, most of the biggest companies that I know don't have GMP certification. And we have companies that are like five people that have it. And it's really those companies that are putting forth that effort, I think, that are in the long run going to do the best. So... We'll just have to see. Super helpful. Yeah, great insight. It is fascinating to kind of obviously understand it's not that these are going to prevent bad things from happening. It's if and when bad things happen, do you have a plan and how do you handle that when something comes up? And obviously it is not, you know, specific to large companies or small companies and the industry is so new that there really isn't any set standard. And we know from your specific experience too, that state to state obviously is lacking a lot of support and authority and it's different. And so it's a big undertaking, but y'all are making a big difference in helping to streamline that and educate both on the regulator side, as well as, you know, the business side. So I appreciate, you know, just you taking the time to connect with us, talk on the podcast, share with my audience this insight, because I love just like learning from you every time. I just like, you know, get to get little snippets of what's going on. I just find it so fascinating because as a marketer, as a business owner, you can't market or run your business if you don't pay attention to these things. So I think sometimes people think, oh, I just want to market or, oh, I just want to, you know, start a business. It's like, well, if you don't understand every ingredient that you're using or what regulations are actually in your specific city, state, you know, federal, if you're shipping your products nationwide, like you need to know those things. So I hope people listening are perking up to just, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm familiar with some of these buzzwords, but maybe not going to go, you know, invest some time on your website or just spending time on Google just to, you know, kind of figure out what they need to help their business, you know, kind of continue to succeed in the industry. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's always good to see your face and get to hang out a little bit. <laughs> Love this episode of To Be Blunt? 
Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.